This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. I'm with Pamela Wiggins on Skype in Texas. Is that right, Pamela? That's right. I live in central Texas in the Austin area. We actually found each other because you listened to a podcast with Connor McCrory, the young picker, back uh, a few weeks ago. Is that right? That's right. I, I listened to that recently, and I'm doing an article on Connor for Heritage Magazine right now and um, listened to your interview and got some information from that and talked to him myself. He's a very interesting young man. Yes, and one of the key things that you are interested in is basically preserving the interests of youth in antiques. Right, and that, that's what my column for Heritage is about, uh, basically kids and collecting and what adults can do to further the interests of children who want to collect um, and show an interest in that and, uh, and kind of further those interests and give them some suggestions about what they can do and how to recognize um, that little spark that, that might lead to something bigger when they grow up. Yes, and just a little background um before we get into your background, is um, for uh, the regular listener, that is, the podcast with Connor has, I guess, in the podcast world, gone viral. And uh, it's really amazing how many people have contacted me about Connor. Um, since we've talked to him, he's actually taken on a few jobs. Um, he's a spokesperson. He's, uh, he writes columns. Um, there's a couple of uh, television production companies that have been toying with the idea of doing something. Uh, we're going to see his name in the future. There's no doubt about that. And, I, don't, I don't doubt that at all. He's a very bright young man, and, and he seems like he's going to stick with this and just keep learning and growing. And by the way, also for the listener out there, uh, Connor has actually contacted me and done some wheeling and dealing. It's really amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can believe that. He he was trying to do that toward the end of our phone interview, too. <laughs> Eight years old. How about that? Mm. So let's hear about your background and how you began your journalism career, and it really focuses on antiques. Well, it does, and it kind of goes back even further than that, because when I was a kid, my mom had an antique shop, not a big production, but, you know, something that she used to supplement her income close to our home, and um, she really loved antiques and collectibles, and I started learning when I was very young you know, just like Connor's doing with his family. So I have that background, and, and it was something that meant a lot to me, maybe not so much when I was a kid, um, like Connor. I, I did collect, but later on in life, when I really became interested in antiques, I still drew on all that learning that I had and all that collecting um prowess that my mother instilled in me when I was a child, and I was able to use that um not only as an adult collector, but when I started to uh, write about antiques and collectibles, which happened when I got a journalism degree from the University of Texas in 1999. And that was sort of a second career move for me, um, wanting to get into writing, and writing about antiques was just very natural for me. Yes, yes. Um, I believe you said when we were talking the other day that you fell away from it for a little while, which is so common. I hear that over and over again. And really what happened when I was a kid, my mom and dad, uh, my dad did a lot of woodworking and restoration. My mother helped him with that. They um, 
they picked up things everywhere they went. They went out into the country in, in Texas here and, and would bring back truckloads full of uh, primitives and everything you can think of, uh, from primitives to fine antiques, really. And they would research them and repair things if they needed to. Um, and resell them. And so I saw all this stuff in our, our house sort of looked like a Bennigan's restaurant or something. I mean, there was stuff all over the walls. My mother would hang things that she liked on the walls. You know, I mean, it was just kind of crazy. And when people would come over to my house, they were fascinated. My friends were, but as a kid, you know, I'm watching the Brady bunch and I want modern. I'm like, I don't, I don't, you know, I didn't really, wasn't really interested in it that much. I asked a lot of questions, and some of the things were fascinating. I did collect some things back then, um, you know, that interested me. I even started a depression glass collection when I was a kid and read my mother's books and learned all the patterns. And, you know, I can see some things in Connor that I that I remember about myself where some things I just became obsessed with them and learned everything I could about them. But by and large, when I got to be a teenager, I didn't really care about it that much. And it didn't happen until I was in my mid-20s that the, she says that I, the antique bug bit me, and it really did because mm -hmm. I, I just went crazy then, and I, I couldn't get enough of it, and I was studying, and we went to estate sales together, and we shopped every weekend, and then I started selling, and she would go with me and help me tend my booth at the antique mall. So it was just something that we really shared as I was growing up, even though I had a lapse. You know, I, w I wasn't interested in it probably during my teen years, but then got back into it in my 20s. So I know that that's, that I'm not the only person that's had that happen. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you teach kids about collecting and antiques now, they might get away from it for a while, but those lessons do come back. I, I believe so too. You know, it's like a seed planted you know, and, um, you know, over the years, like, uh, there was a stretch of time where I would try a couple of different things beside antiques, but, um, it was always my passion. I always, always fell back on it. And, um, you know, you can never lose that knowledge that you have. And, you know, you can be, say, if you're out of it for a while and you happen to drive by, something catches your eye sitting in a doorway or something, you're going to pull over. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, we're infected with it, really. Yeah, it it does. I, I think, and you know, one of the things too that I try to encourage with people is that it, it's not, it, you know, I want the the hobby to continue. There's no doubt about that. Um, but one of the reasons why I want the hobby to continue is because I feel like that it, it really builds strong families when you share these things together. And there's so many things out there nowadays. Um, not that I don't enjoy playing games on my iPad or whatever, too, just like everybody else, but kids can be so engrossed in other things that it's nice to have something that gets you away from the television or away from the computer and get you out walking around the flea market, talking, sharing, talking about history, learning about things that um, are no longer used today that were used in the past. There's something valuable about that um, that you just can't. You, until you experience it, you don't really know how valuable it is. That's true. And, you know, today it's so easy for a young person or anybody really to get any of the information they're looking for on the Internet. And what you just mentioned, to get out there, to get to flea markets, touch and feel, pick up, look at look it over, try to find out what makes it rare and valuable. Those are the key things that spark interest in this business. 
Well, and, and for even for adult collectors, um, when you're teaching children, you, you find out pretty quickly that you really can't evaluate something unless you're holding it. You learn to look at pictures and you learn to look what to look for, but you get that real knowledge of what to look for from holding something in your hands. And I do that all the time. I specialize in vintage costume jewelry and I can shop pretty well online looking for telltale things that might be wrong with something um, from a picture. But that doesn't come without a lot of practice. And mm -hmm. you have to you have to teach children to look at things and examine them for condition and exactly what you were saying, what makes one piece more valuable than another in terms of um, condition or quality. Those are things that you really learn by, hand, you, you know, visiting flea markets, antique shops, shows where you can teach a kid, you know, to ask questions without handling things. All those lessons that you, you instill in them will help them be more knowledgeable and better at what they're doing. I had a situ uh, many situations where someone will send me a picture and I say, oh, great, this looks really good. And then I actually touch the piece, pick it up, turn it over, and feel it in my hands and all of a sudden realize that there's something wrong with it. It's not, and we're talking maybe early Chinese or something like that, that it's not right. Uh, and conversely, uh, there's a particular artist that um, have a lot of in-depth knowledge of, Walt Kuhn, um, and uh, someone sent me a picture of a painting of his, and I said to them, I really don't think it's his work. And then they had a lake house there in Maine. I went up uh, where not too far away from my home where they were. And she took it out of the, the box, handed it to me, and it instantly I said, oh, this is definitely his work. So yeah. it really does go both ways. It's so much better to look at something in hand. And today I know that you do online appraisals. I do online appraisals. I'm not a real fan of not being able to hold something, but if you get enough pictures, you can generally tell the value and what something is. Well, and, and that's true, and, and that kind of goes back to what I was saying before about collecting online and buying online. We've learned these skills to be able to look at pictures, to be appraisers online from handling a lot of pieces in person. So sometimes you see something in a picture and you think, oh, yeah, I've had 10 of those. I know exactly what it is, and the mark's right. The decoration's good. Here's the value. Um, other times, I would probably tell somebody, you know, I'm, I don't feel comfortable um, mm -hmm. telling you what that's worth until I see it and make sure that I feel like it's an authentic piece or uh, of the quality that I'm, I'm seeing in the picture, that your picture's not making it look a lot better than it really is. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think the Internet is a great tool. Um, I love the Internet. I, I write all the time online and share information with people. But there's still that basic learning that you get from getting out there and, and doing the uh, antiquing in person that you just don't get online. And that's something that families can share together. They learn from one another. Right. Yes, exactly. When people ask me how to learn about antiques, you know, how to gain knowledge, I tell them, you know, not necessarily with the family, but just to go up to a dealer um, at a flea market, at an auction or wherever, and s just start a conversation. You know, oh, you bought this, so why did you buy this? What makes it rare? What can you tell me about the history of this? You know, start the conversation. Sometimes dealers, they want to keep the knowledge for power of being able to buy something with their knowledge and buy it cheaper than you could. 
But most of the time, I find that dealers are very willing to share what makes something rare. Well, they are. And I found that dealing with a lot of collectors and shows and um, even conventions for collectors, people are proud of their finds. They're proud of what they recognize. and, And they definitely want, by and large, to share knowledge with one another. You know, there are certain limitations to that, and, and we all have our specialties and, and want to be uh, up on things so that we can make a profit. But really, most people are willing to share, and, and they're, um, if you find somebody that's not, you just move on. You know, you don't take it too personally. But uh, asking questions and getting to know people, sometimes you do that online. You get to know people, and then you actually have a chance to meet them in person, and you become really good friends with them, and you can learn together that way, and they can share knowledge with you and, and share collections and compare notes. So there, there's a lot of things you can do with beginning online and then taking it offline. Now, the people that listen to this show, I get emails from people that are just starting to collect and just starting to get into it. And then there's some old-time dealers and auctioneers and all kinds of people that listen to this show. So I'm going to go back to something that you said because um, someone may not exactly know what it is. What is depression glass? Well, depression glass was by and large made during the Depression era, Um There were a few exceptions where pieces were starting to be made before then, but during the night from 1929 all the way through the 30s, lots of depression glass was made, and you recognize it mostly by the colors and the patterns. Um, It sometimes can be confused with older glass when you're looking at clear glass, but the colors are pretty distinctive. It's a a light green color, which will also fluoresce under a black light, Um, pink, amber, some blue, uh, light blue and cobalt blue. Those are the main colors. So you identify it first usually by color and then by pattern. And there were a multitude of patterns by different companies that were made during that time. And there, you know, uh, I, I always called the amber color marigold, but I'm not really sure what the right term is for that. Well, there are two different colors. Marigold is sort of an iridescent color that's more orangey. And amber is sort of a yellowish um, Mm -hmm. color. Then there's also true yellow depression glass as well. So you find all, you learn all the nuances about the colors once you really get into the hobby. Now, depression glass was really hot during the 70s, 80s, and possibly into the early 90s. And it kind of tanked in the last few years, as they say. And, but I was at an auction a while ago and there was a, what was a very rare pattern and example of depression glass that actually shocked me. It went really high, and it, it was uh, interesting to see that the rare pieces are still hanging in there. Well, any that's kind of true with everything, mm-hmm. uh, any any category of collectibles. Um, the rarities are always going to uh, bring good prices because those are the things that the, the long-time collectors are still looking for. Um, right. A lot of people's, you know, and, and actually depression glass is kind of one of those buyer's market kind of things. Now, if you like dinnerware and you like collecting and you want something that you can maybe use on, on occasion and have a collection as well, you can put together a set of depression glass dinnerware now a lot cheaper than probably when I was collecting in the 70s and 80s. Um, 
it, you, you can really get some good bargains and you can order some pieces online, but you have to make sure they're in good condition. It's a fun hobby and, and it can be reasonably priced if you're looking for something that's kind of a bargain hobby. It would just take some money to have those fill-in items that are the harder to find pieces in whichever pattern that you choose. There's almost at least one piece in every pattern that's that kind of holy grail kind of thing. Right, and they made reproductions. Oh, yes, and you have to be careful about that as well. <laughs> Although, it's really funny now because some of the reproductions, they're not really making many reproductions now because of the demand. Right. Demand has dropped. Yeah. But some of the pieces that were made that were reproduced back in the 70s are actually collectible now. <laughs> I believe so, it. You know, yeah. that, that is bound to happen probably with mm-hmm. almost any reproduction, you know. Exactly. It, and in a way, it's kind of sad, but and at least it keeps people collecting, I guess. Well, you know, they discover it now and think, wow, this is really cool. And then I'm like, well, okay, as long as you realize that that Shirley Temple piece, you know, you have a Shirley Temple decal on this uh, oh, yeah. piece, but it's not old. <laughs> as, right. long as, you, as long as you know that, that's fine. If you, if you like it, you can buy it and think it's cool, but it's not the old one from the 1930s. So you just, you have to know that. That's right. Exactly. Now, you have a book you're writing or you did write? Actually, I've written a couple of books. I I wrote a book about buying and selling antiques and collectibles on eBay. Um, It was published in 2004. And then um, I wrote the introduction to Warman's Jewelry 5th Edition, um, which was published this summer. And I'm currently working on Warman's Costume Jewelry that will be published next summer in 2014. I believe we're both in the same book. I wrote the forward to the rare glass and lamp section. Okay. Well, actually, you are in the Warman's um, general book, and mine was uh, the jewelry book. So there oh. were two different ones. But I did read your, your some of your stuff in here, and I referred to it in one of my articles. So there you go. All right. Great. That's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so is your passion now more towards the costume jewelry and things like that? What do you collect? Um, my main collection right now is costume jewelry. Um, I do a lot of things revolving around costume jewelry. I, I started uh, Costume Jewelry Collectors International with my partner, Melinda Lewis, who is in California. And we got to know each other through another jewelry organization. And when that one kind of uh, faded out a few years ago, we started a new one. So we have an international organization for jewelry collectors. So I spend a lot of time Um, focused on collectible jewelry, writing articles for our website and coordinating a yearly convention for our group. And so a lot of what I do right now is, you know, revolves around collectible jewelry, but I write about all kinds of antiques and collectibles for about.com as well. Oh, that's a great site to be associated with. Where can someone find you online? You can find me as a seller on Ruby Lane and on eBay. My business name is Chic Antiques by Pamela Wiggins. And you can find my articles online at costumejewelrycollectors.com and about.com. So that's C-H-I-C Antiques? Uh-huh. All right, great. Since the Internet has kind of changed a lot of things, and we talked about this the other day, where do you think the future of collecting is going to go? Well, I, I think that we're going to continue to see people turn to the Internet for research and for buying. There's no question about that. Um, I think that 
I wrote the book about eBay in 2004, and it's changed even more since then. I first got on eBay in 1996 when it was in its infancy. Wow. And, and I saw the change from working in an antique mall at that time to selling on eBay at that time. We saw, I saw a shift in the antique mall and what people were looking for. And uh, as a prime example, back then, a, a glassware-related thing was jadeite. You, uh-huh. couldn't give, you couldn't give jade out away until Martha Stewart put it on the front of a magazine. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, everybody wanted it, and they were racing into the antique mall to get it and cleaning the shelves. Well, once they could buy it online, the price dropped because so many more people had it to offer for sale. So that's where you get into those rarities. If you're shopping an online auction forum, the rarities still sell for good money, but you kind of have a flooded market with the more common items. So you keep that in mind when you're shopping and when you're buying for resale at this point, um, where you're going to sell is, is more is important. So there's still a place for the flea market. There's still a place for the brick-and-mortar antique store, and then there's a place for you to sell online to reach a, a wider audience, and, and that's sort of how I approach it. I have a... a a booth in an antique mall also. And I put the things there that I think would be better for people to see in person or some of the more common things that I can sell a little cheaper, put those there. And then where I have to pay um, a little bit more overhead to sell online, I sell the, the rare, more rare things there. And that's sort of how I do it. But you have to, as a dealer nowadays, and even as a collector, you kind of balance yourself between shopping online and shopping offline. You know, I, I think it's it's really it is really hard to speculate with what's going to happen in the future. I recently was contacted by a German auction house, which I'm actually going to be interviewing a representative from there called uh, the auction house is called Auctionata, and it's I watched an online auction and I couldn't believe it. It was HD, uh, high definition. The auctions when they're live. They are live on several television stations around the world and also on the Internet. I pulled up the screen, and there's all these cameras focusing in on this item. Like Again, high definition. There's uh, live footage of them going in, close up to the object, and around the back on a turntable. And that's the closest thing I've ever seen to actually being next to a piece when I wasn't there. And I think... My personal thoughts are is that it's going to head in that direction. A lot of the collecting, a lot of the buying is going to evolve with the technology as technology evolves. Well, I agree with you. I think that we've seen a lot of uh, even just having bidding online where you can you can bid all over the country. Um, you can even just looking at pictures. We weren't we weren't able to do that before with live auctions. You could bid against the floor. Um, online. You know, I've done that before with um, some jewelry I was buying that was or had some co- uh, celebrity provenance. Um, mm-hmm. And I was bidding online, but I was bidding against a live auction floor. So this takes what you're talking about takes it one step further where you can actually see the pieces in more detail during the auction and that they're tailoring the auction to a an internet audience and as technology improves and um, we have better connections and we have better equipment we can do that it's not the way it used to be it's not the old days anymore it's an evolving marketplace but um it's exciting it's fun to see what happens next
That's right. Now, what would you tell the novice collector out there that someone just contacted you and say, look, I'm interested in collecting. Uh, I don't know what I want to collect. What would you say to them? I would tell them that, first of all, what are you drawn to? What interests you? What, When you go into an antique store or an antique show, what are you drawn to? Is it old postcards? Is it the jewelry? Is it um, what, what particular, you know, campaign buttons for presidential elections? I mean, there's so many different categories. And I tell people that, too, with, with the kids, guiding the kids and collecting. Hone in on what they're interested in. If they're interested in books, then start teaching them about rare books. If they're interested in um, action figures, find out what they need to be looking for at the flea market in terms of, of, of rare and valuable action figures. Whatever it is, hone in on that and learn as much as you can about it and um, start asking questions and doing research and you, you kind of feel your way along. You, you know, you like something and you get passionate about it and, and you can't get enough of it then. It sort of takes on a life of its own, really. Yeah. And we all in this business always learn by our mistakes. Sometimes we have to live <laughs> with our mistakes, too, because we can't sell them. Well, my mother used to call it paying for your education in yes. the antiques business. And that was one of her, you know, whenever she made a mistake, she said, well, I paid for my education because there wasn't really a uni an antiques university you could go to to learn. You you learned when you bought something that wasn't um, in top condition, how to check it better the next time and make sure you don't, you know, make sure when you buy a glass pitcher that you look at the handle and make sure it's not cracked at the base, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you feel for chips. You, you look for um, tears in ephemera. You learn different uh, things that are important to each field of collecting and you learn what to look for so that you don't make those mistakes buying reproductions or damaged items um, and you make sure that what you pay for them that they're worth that much well you're preaching to the choir here thank, <laughs> thank you so much for your time it's been a real pleasure well thank you martin i appreciate it This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.
choir here. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you, Martin. I appreciate it. All right. So this is Martin Willis with Pamela Wiggins, and we're signing off.